You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What do Lynn Ahrens, John Rando, Glenn Slater, and a ton of other Tony Award winners have in common? They're all speaking at my conference on November 11th and 12th of this year. Go to theproducersperspective.com, click on that conference link, and come join us. It's going to be a blast. theproducersperspective.com backslash conference. See you there. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. It's Ken Davenport here. Welcome to the Producers Perspective podcast. Today, we're talking funny. Please welcome to the podcast the longtime creative executive of Second City, Mr. Kelly Leonard. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So during his tenure at Second City in Chicago, Kelly has overseen and helped develop the careers of incredible performers. Everyone from Tina Fey to Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Seth Meyers, and so many more. It's ridiculous. He expanded the Second City brand to touring shows, bringing the company's unique style to theaters around the country, cruise ships, and more. We're going to talk about those cruise ships. All right. He's the author of Yes And and has his own podcast, so he's a real pro at this. He's going to give me some tips later. (laughs) The podcast is called Getting to Yes And, and the coolest, listen to this title. He's the executive director of insights and applied improvisation for Second City in combination with the University of Chicago, where he actually studies behavioral science through the lens of improvisation. Very, very fancy. How did <laughs> how did you fall into the world of academia bits and improv <laughs> and then get to academia? Wow. Okay. So 
I, my dad was a theater critic in Chicago for many, many years. His name was Roy Leonard, WGN. And for any of the sort of like people who've been in the business a while, they'll know him because he, he like sort of dominated. He was like the only guy in media TV. Like he had, he reviewed theater on TV, which doesn't happen. So it certainly didn't happen then. So I grew up going to theater and in college decided I wanted to be a playwright. And so my dad did two things for me. When I graduated, he said, I can, I can get you a couple like interviews, like informational interviews, which as you know, is a great way to just like throw yourself out there. So first I met with Rock Schulfer at the Goodman, who told me that if you want to be in theater, be in a theater. And it doesn't matter if you're tearing tickets or whatever, just get in. But I have no job for you. <laughs> so even though Rock gets out of my theater, get out of my theater, even though he does claim credit as giving me my start in theater and I will gladly hand that to him. He's a legend. And then my second meeting was with Bernie Sollins, who was the co-founder of the Second City. He had sold the Second City some years earlier and was starting a new theater called the Willow Street Carnival. Bernie literally said, you're hired. And he said, I'll make you a production assistant. It doesn't start for six months. Call my friend Joyce Sloan at Second City. She'll get you a job there. Of course, I assumed I was going to be the director of marketing because I come from a privileged environment. So I show up at Second City in October of 1988. I meet Allison Riley at the front bar. It's a Friday night. She walks me to the back bar and says, start washing these dishes. And I literally then wash glasses. It, and by the way, you could smoke in Second City in those days. And the back bar was filled with like alcoholics and sociopaths. I mean, it's like, it's ex if you think of what it was, like it was that. It made it worse. Those are the people performing too. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I remember Joel Murray, who was in the cast, Billy's little brother was like, Hey, you holding? I'm like, what? And it turns out he knew my brother and we had a mutual friend who was a drug dealer. And it was just like, it was debaucherous and terrible, and I went home and cried my eyes out because my hands hurt. And I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. But I started studying, like, what, what was I doing there? What, and I knew Second City. This is an interesting thing. I did not know that Second City was created through improvisation. What's interesting about that was I was a big student of improvisation, but through music. I was a deadhead. I was a jazz fan. And I had done my thesis in college on the beat generation, in particular Jack Kerouac's spontaneous Bob prosody his jazz writing improvised writing so i had all this sort of like language for improvisation and didn't know that it fit theatrically and then when you'd sneak out of the bar and you'd watch them improvise in the third act it was like just utter magic i, I never so the cast was mike myers bonnie hunt joel murray jane lynch was in the professional company then chris farley was in the touring company and these are just like so you go to farley's and party till three in the morning you know what 21 year old is not like yeah i want to do this so i i did that for like six months i left to go work for bernie's theater which was a nightmare written up in time magazine it was going to be because it was like the next second city and it just it didn't have enough money here's my great story from that bernie wanted to have a uh, turntable stage so he got a turntable but he couldn't afford the electric motor so it was my job to hand crank this turntable. And I was not strong enough when all six actors were on it. So Pete Burns, who's in the cast, has to jump off his stilts, help me get it going, jump back up on his stilts. Bernie also wanted the entire theater to snow, like when people were walking in for the second half. It was all about the seasons. Couldn't afford that. So I ended up just shaking a paint can with little shards of paper coming down. That theater did not last long. I wonder and, why. And I went back and hired in the box office. Okay, so I have so many questions about that, and I'm sure. just going to get to some of those names you mentioned first. So you're 20 years old, you said 21, 21. years old? Mm -hmm. And you're seeing Chris Farley and Mike Myers and yeah. all these people. Did you know something? Could you see in what they would end up 
becoming? Were you like, oh my god, this Chris Farley guy, this is going to be a big star. Oh my god, this Mike Myers guy. Yeah, yeah. So what? <laughs> Not was hard. It, what uh, was it about it that you were like? Well, Mike. Okay, so let's start with uh, so Mike Myers and Bonnie Hunter in the cast. Those are the two that I immediately was like, okay, I, you know. One thing was Mike was an outsider of the cast. So actually he spent, because he was from Canada, and the cast was mean to him because he was from Canada. Not, Duh. Yeah. Well, it just, you know, they, they, the there's a lot of, like, West Side Story between Toronto and Chicago <laughs> in terms of where where the aesthetic comes from and what's right and all that. So people were mean to Mike, which was not cool. So actually I spent a fair amount of time with Mike talking about hockey and stuff because I like hockey. But he... I mean, he had the audience in the palm of his hand, and he did a lot of solo material because the cast was mean to him, but also because he could do it. And when you're able to do that kind of solo stuff, in spite of whatever dysfunction exists in the cast, it's like, oh my god, I mean, you you can just do this by yourself. Bonnie was the queen of repartee with the audience, which is why she was like the ultimate talk show guest for so long. Very funny, good actress, great improviser, but just had this connection with the audience. That came clear as you were watching. Farley was a different beast entirely. That was like watching something dangerous, sort of sweet and dangerous. And if you knew him, you'd know where that comes from, because he was like an overgrown three-year-old. He was always apologizing because he was always borrowing money and, you know, not taking care of himself, but he didn't mean it. And so he was just, he was a teddy bear who was also like this big... Like, you know, he indulged in everything. Everyone talks about the drugs and alcohol. All true. And food, yeah. Uh, also went to church like that. He binged church. He was OCD. So we he, he would touch stuff, right, on the, on the way to work and back. And we would incorporate it in shows. There would be scenes where... It's a great scene. It was called the Schnitzkis, and he was the uh, young suitor coming for the first date. The door opens. You don't see anyone there. And then he pops up, and Joe Liss, who's on stage, goes, What were you doing? He's like, Ah, touching stuff. And that... The audience doesn't know what that's about. Maybe someone laughs because they, whatever, it sounds weird. But, like, it's, I just love that because it was an acknowledgement of, like, this thing that Chris does. That was, and and it was funny because I was so young in my career, and I remember talking to Joyce Sloan, who was the producer at the time, who was very close with John Belushi. And she's like, this is a lot like what it was like with John. And that doesn't, and that's not normal. Don't think that's normal. It just comes along every now and again. So back to you for a second. So you were going to be a playwright. Yeah. You go to an interview at the Goodman. Yeah serious theater. Yeah, and I'm writing plays. I'm at this it, I'm still writing plays at this point. And I assume you want to write the great American play. Were you writing comedies? Were you writing dramas? What were you doing? Um, dramedy. I had a play that came in third at the Steppenwolf New Play competition the year Eric Simonson won with a thing he was doing with Lady Smith Black Mambazo. That's all I remember. I don't know who was number two. And Sheldon Patinkin, who was the longtime artistic consultant and director at the Second City, was there. And he, like, it didn't matter that I was a dishwasher or a box office guy. But he gave me notes in my play and, you know, in plays. But I kept getting promoted. By 1990, I'm, I, I invented a, a director of marketing position. Never existed at Second City, or at least at that time. So I ran the box office. I started doing marketing, which we hadn't done. And then I became the assistant to the executive producer. And then literally in 1992, Andrew Alexander, the owner of Second City, offered me the job of becoming the producer of Second City because Joyce Sloan, who had been the previous producer, had a series of health issues and was just not in a position to do it. And there really wasn't anyone else. Like, I showed up on time. <laughs> and I'm not, I know I sound like I'm being modest. I'm not being modest. I showed up on time and I knew a lot of people. And I seemed reasonably okay and smart. Once someone once told me after one of my first gigs in the business, 
They said, you've obviously learned what it takes to work in this business. And I was said, what is it? And they said, do what you're told. Just yeah. Do what you're told. Just show up on time. Show up on time. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, but talk to me a little bit, because I think when the, the layman thinks about improv, they right. think about a bunch of people in a basement somewhere just making up stuff, doing bits, whatever it is. Yeah. And here you're a playwright. Talk to me about the construct, if you will, of sure. the improv and why it's not just a bunch of people doing oh, fart jokes. Or- I don't know. In fact, I, I mean, I discovered early on that it's actually a practice. So, and, and when you think, and this really dovetails into why I'm doing what I'm doing now with academic work, which is it is not all, it, it is hard to be funny. Um, and that, and, and to, to be funny, like if you think about it with a stand up comedy sense, they go out on the road and they test out their material audience after audience after audience. They hone their act. Pryor did that. Carlin did that to get it to a certain point. Then they have to abandon it and do it again. And it's a really sort of like, and, and so it means you have to go out and bomb and you have to fail. And that's hard. In improvisation, you were doing the same thing. And on the one hand, you're doing it with a group, which means at least you have protection around you. On the other hand, you're doing it with a group of people. So creating an entire sketch comedy review that is written by a group, performed by a group. I mean, this is, this is, I remember Jeff Richmond, who is uh, the composer on, on Mean Girls. He was a director for Second City, left me a note after a particular rough improv set saying, this is the most inefficient way to create art ever. And he is right in a sense. Tapping into that group thing is really, really hard. But what you get is a level of authenticity that I think anyone who has watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, anyone who has seen a Christopher Guest movie, anyone who's seen a great Second City show is like, oh, they're getting a kind of a truth here that you don't see otherwise. And it's grounded in an immense amount of practice and repetition around the rules so you can abandon the rules. You know, things like yes and. If you want to create something out of nothing, the way to not do that is by saying no. The way to do that is by saying yes and. About making your partner look good. The whole thing about improvisation is taking focus off yourself. It is about being intensely others-focused. And this has become increasingly important in the digital age when we are more and more not just focused on ourselves but on our devices and we tend to get worse at picking up on cues because people don't tell you the truth. I have found this, generally speaking. I don't mean that, like, cynically. I just don't... People don't know how to tell their truth to people. And they're worried about their truth maybe offending them or making them too vulnerable or whatever. But the reality is, and this is where the science comes in, which is there's a theory called self-verification theory, which means that you want to be seen the way you see yourself, but you're not going to tell me about that. All right, so I have to tease out what that is. So I'm sitting across from you at a desk right now, and I have to get by a man, white man, New Yorker, theater producer. You know, I start to dig in, and I found, oh, you love music. Oh, you love this. What's your sport team? And I started, and then now you become this sort of nuanced figure, and then I can be able to sort of play with you on a really sort of fundamentally more interesting level than the top level. And that's what improvisers do. They do it in character, but those characters always, they always have a shred of yourself. I think anyone... When you think about the classic Second City performers like Belushi or Bill Murray or Gilda Radner or Tina Fey, like they, yes, they're playing characters, but you see them underneath. And you and Colbert is that, that right? I mean, people just like quite rightly are, are so enamored with that mind and that soul. Um, and it is, it's powerful. He's a powerfully interesting human being, and he shows that through his his characters. So it's really hard. It's grounded in a lot of practice. It's It requires a surrendering of ego, which is tough in our industry, because to just get on stage, you have to have that ego. 
So I don't know if, you know, the, the book that I think is so, you know, Viola Spolin's Improvisation for the Theater is the Bible of Improvisation. Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman should be the Bible for the science behind improvisation. Because that's all about system one, system two brain, fast brain, slow brain. And, you know, our, our fast brain recognizes that you're a guy. So I just get by that and I go to other stuff. But the slow brain really sort of plays with what is that. And when you're improvising, you have to do both. Back and forth. Back and forth. And that skill set is the thing that I thought was magic when I first started to work there. And then I realized was like, oh, no, this is why every famous comedian of the last like six decades has come out of this place. And talk to me a little bit how that translates to the writing process, because what I find so fascinating about those names that I read off, whether it's Colbert, whether it's Tina Fey, these people now, they're not just stand-up comedians or performers, they're writers writers. writing this stuff. How does the skill and the training of improvisation enhance a writer's skill? So improvisation doesn't give you story. Let's start there. Uh, And and actually, let let me, there, there is disagreement about this in our field. So this is just my opinion. My opinion is that improvisation is not great for developing story. Improvisation is great for developing characters and comedy and situations, enhancing moments, those sorts of things. So what happens at Second City is we initially improvise off an idea and we re-improvise off that idea. And then we begin to write that idea. That doesn't always mean that you're actually writing a script. It does It does often. Often people are just go, well, let me write this up. And they'll, they'll take the tape from that night and transcribe it. Other people will just be like, no, I got the beats down. I, I know what it is. And then we'll, we'll script it later. It depends what kind of performer you are. But you are doing, it's a little bit like rapid prototyping. When you think about what that is with regard to the way tech has to enter the universe, which is like, you don't put out the iPhone. You know, you, you have versions you know, probably like 25, 30 versions that a few people hang around with and play with and then have to then go back and fix. That's what happens in the 12-week period that you're creating a Second City review is that that scene that you had, you probably futzed with it 15, 20 times. Then you decide, okay, it's good enough for now. But then later, you know, in the show, as you develop other material, you realize, oh, no, we got to futz with it again, but we can't lose what's essential. So you really end up becoming a bit of a mathematician as a writer because you you see how all these different elements fit. When you're dealing with review, it's very akin to vaudeville in terms of what we talk about with a running order. So if you know anything about vaudeville history, they had a, a running order of acts that was very specific because at a certain point they needed to get everyone to leave so they could bring in a new audience. So you had a worst act. I forget what, what my wife is a comedy professor. She could tell this better than I can. But there was a, 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 a place where it was like, okay, this is the terrible act. So people leave. And there's other places where it's, you know, uh, a, like, like a human trick. And that running order, though, is built to sort of have energy hit at a certain time and then dip and whatever. You know, there's a lot of thought that went into it. And the same with review comedy. So that even, you know, you can ruin a show if you just have the material not in the right order. And while that is the director's job, it is often the cast's job to help them hone the material so that it can work in these slots. You know, so that the... And it's not, you know, Broadway has its 11 o'clock number and all those things. There, there's, this is theater history, and it's related to all of our work. But that two-act review form is, is pretty specific. And occasionally you can break the rules, which is cool, too. But the mind of these improvisers who reach a resident stage at Second City becomes very facile and agile. I mean, in part because it's not like we, we don't close. I mean, we're closed on Christmas Eve and Christmas. So you get in the main stage. Besides your vacation, you do eight shows a week. And you're improvising after six of those shows for probably like three years. 
So it's like intense boot camp. And and also we're we're not playing for the Second City audience is like human being audience. It's not people who necessarily even know they're going to a theater. I worked in the box office. I you know I can't tell you the amount of times people were like, "Is Carrot Top performing?" And I just say, "Yes, indeed, in disguise." We always think about improv, and actually, it's how I led your introduction to being funny. It's yeah. comedy. Yeah. Have you ever witnessed, and how does drama play? Do you ever witnessed uh, an improv that's like? No. I produced. I produced. I produced a dramatic improv show. And how did that go? It was terrible. <laughs> It was terrible. It was Adam McKay, who people will know as Will Ferrell's partner in Funny or Die and the director of The Big Short. On Broadway, he directed Will's George Bush show. Yeah, I produced that. He's amazing. Yeah, Adam's great. So Adam and I decided we wanted to do a dramatic improv show with a great cast, killer cast. Brian Stack, who writes for Conan, all these great people. This is the the story of opening night. We're having some troubles in previews because we kept getting laughs. I know. Brian, Damn it! They're laughing. Stop I know. it! And Brian's technically like, "I'm so sorry, guys. I didn't mean to make a joke. It just like it really because we we're so we we're such earnest poet jerks on this thing. So the infamous improv guru Del Close is going to come to our show, and I'd known Del, and Adam had been one of his students, and we're at the Stage Left Theater on the North Side of Chicago. It's not there anymore. I'm actually I'm producing and tearing tickets. So Del comes in, and the lights start to go down, and Del turns to the person next to him and goes. This is a sketch show, right? I go, oh no, it's dramatic improv. He goes, okay. And he got up and left. Right as the lights went down. So I see him leaving as I'm coming in. I'm like, oh, okay. And that was the, that was probably the omen for how bad that show was. It doesn't mean you can't use improvisation to get to great drama. And I think the best example of this is Mike Lee and the English film director. So, you you look at like a, a film like Secrets and Lies. He led his cast through a variety of improvisations for those characters, but also didn't give them information ahead of time in that sort of penultimate scene when a, a big secret gets revealed. And that's stunningly honest filmmaking. And Lee, he's written a lot about the way he uses improvisation. So there's definitely ways to do that. I personally did not have the skill set to know how to do that well. Do you think, and I want to talk about that in terms of what, you know, we're sitting in the middle of Times Square in the middle yeah. of 41 Broadway theaters. Do you think improv is a tool that should be used for the development of plays, all plays and musicals here? I definitely, so I, I just finished the galleys of a book called Improv Nation that comes out in December by Sam Lawson. Sam wrote the Fosse book that many people have read who listen to this. And this is a book about the development of improvisation in America and very much through Second City. And I learned so much in this book and like I've got stuff to share with you because I, I thought about you when I was reading this, but it, mostly around Nichols and May and when they went to Broadway and then how each of them used improvisation, uh, Mike in particular for his six, you know, for Apple Tree and some of the other successful work. And, and he used it strategically. You know, Elaine used it as a weapon. And it ended up getting her in trouble uh, with like the, the story about Nikki and Mikey, the film that she did that she like when she stole the reels because they were trying. I mean, she shot, she went over budget, she shot way too much, and she just didn't know how to utilize improvisation in the way that Nichols did. However, the thing that Sam sets up so beautifully is that Mike, in many ways, always wanted to be her, and she always wanted to be him, and this, and that's the tension. Right. So I think, and that's the tension in improvisation. Bernie Sollins thought it was a, a, a tool to get to great scripted theater. Del Close thought it was an art form in and of itself. I don't know that either of them are, are right solely. They probably both aren't and they both are. Here's what I know about improvisation. It is the ultimate workout for you to develop your human being skills. And if you think that's important, 
when you need to create with other people, I suggest you do a little improv. So, yes, everyone should fucking use it. Sorry, can I swear on your podcast? You can definitely swear. We get the explicit rating when you do that. I, th- right. I feel so cool on iTunes when that happens. So, you since 1988, you've been doing this. Has comedy changed over that period yes. of time? So, tell me what... You, I mean, your wife may be a professor, yeah. but... Tell me what you've seen in in how comedy and how audiences respond and what they're looking for to make them laugh these days. So let me, I'm going to quote my wife, who has a great line, which is that comedy doesn't change the world, but comedy shows you the world has changed. And what that means is that we will, I'll give you an example. There was a scene called Two Truths and a Lie that we did in the uh, mid-90s. Jack McBrayer was in that cast. And it was it's the party game, Two Truths and a Lie, and, and they're playing it. But the, the blow of the scene, the big laugh at the, scene, at the end of the scene, is that the, the couple that's about to get married, the guy finds out all these terrible things about her, and the biggest, funniest thing is that she's actually a guy. All right? So very funny in the early 90s, mid-90s. And around the 2000s, maybe 2003, college audiences are going, eh, that's, that seems uncool. And then a little later, it's like, no, that's really uncool. And then suddenly you're like, oh, no, that's uncool. <laughs> Change it. Or, or the use of the word retarded. There's something that when I started Second City, no one ever thought. I mean, that, that, that word was used all the time. And then, and then it's just not funny now. So there are words in situations that have changed. And and let's talk about this because I, I'm sure you remember the big sort of like all the talk around Chris Rock and Seinfeld not playing college campuses and all that. And what frustrates me about those conversations is that people tend to put their jersey on and fall into camps, which is either I'm tired of this political correct bullshit or how how dare you? How dare you? But the thing is, both are true. That A, if you're leaning on your old material that isn't updated considering where the world is at, you're a hack. And conversely, if you don't allow comedians to play with the line, and George Carlin has that great phrase, which which most people stop, he's, he's like, I like to cross over the line, and people always stop that. But he, what he says after that is, I like to cross over the line, take the hand of the audience, have them come with me, and make them glad they came. So that, that protects the audience when you go over the line. Louis C.K. is a master of this. His last special, when he did the whole abortion bit, was just a bludgeon to liberals in the best possible way, in my opinion. I loved it. And that's exactly what, and then he, and then he brings it back, and you're, you're safe, but you're not safe for a while, and you have to question it. And that, to me, is the beauty of comedy. So, yes, what you have to think about it is like levers on a mixing board. You know, and at a certain point, the bass can go up here and the treble can go up here, and then, oh, oh no, we got to go down here. And like 9 11 is an example of that. I was producing a show that was supposed to open on September 13th, 2001. And so we canceled the show on 9-11. We opened back again on September 12th. We took out every reference to an airplane. We couldn't reference airplanes for about six months. We had a scene in the show where a nurse danced with a cadaver out. But seven months, eight months later, with that distance, and we all know about comedy and distance, we were able to open a show which is a seminal Second City show called Holy War Batman, which introduced the world to Keegan-Michael Key, who played an Afghani cab driver on the night of 9-11. And just the whole theme was all these people getting into his cab and the emotions that went with that. And we took, we took on some stuff. But at that point, we'd had, you know, months to be able to synthesize. So it's a really great example of, and I'll give you one more. We had a scene the year after Columbine, and it was like a botched 
shoot up that two kids were doing in a, in a school. And one night I just happened to be at the theater and this girl screamed at the stage and ran out as that scene started. Follow her. I'm, what, what's up? And, and she's like, how could you do that scene? And I'm like, it's been a year. And she was a freshman at Northwestern because she'd been a senior at Columbine. And we had this talk and I don't think she was satisfied, but I did say that scene will never be okay for you. You know, you don't have the distance. You're not going to have the distance. But I think it is for other people. And, and we have to be cognizant of that. So I'm always trying to sort of like figure out the context with regard to that stuff in terms of... And I think when you, when, when, when a tweet goes wrong or when, you know, a joke goes wrong and we all... This happens right all the time now. We should examine all the elements of who said it, when did they say it, how did they say it, and what format did they say it. How many other people were around? Because comedy changes based on all those things. Yeah, I love this idea, too. That it's the Carl Carlin reference, of course, and just pushing the line and grabbing the hand of the audience. Because I think that's what great theater does, too. I always sure. say that's what Rent did. Angels you know, in America. Angels in America. Even Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. Abney Q. Hamilton. You yeah, know, the totally. traditional audience was not... They would not order up Hamilton. Totally. Hey, bring me hip-hop with not a white <laughs> face on there. And, you know, yes. that's... Uh, they, With the founding they, fathers. Right. They didn't know they wanted to see that. No. A great artist and great art says, come take a look and mm-hmm. you'll be okay. You're going to love yeah. it. Yeah. So so I, I love that aspect of it. Now, so you're you're obviously this artist, but you got this other hat as well. You really expanded the brand of Second City tremendously over the last couple decades. Me and a lot of people, but yes. But so talk to me a little bit about the entrepreneurial side of what you do and how you take something that is known for, again, existing in basements and beers for two bucks and then bring it all over the world. All right. So I have to recognize the gift that was handed to me as a producer of Second City. Second City in 1992, when I became producer, might have been known locally by the press as like a tourist trap, but it sold out every night with no advertising. My first cast was Steve Carell. Steve Colbert, Amy Sedaris. Never heard. My first hire in the touring company were Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, and Rachel Dratch. And it's not like like I showed up and suddenly they showed up. Like no, 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 they they were around, and I was just smart enough. And we all, it's like it's not like there's not twenty people in that room, and all of us are going, yeah, that's Tina Fey, sure, yes. When you are handed the job of producing a theater, and you don't have to worry about ticket sales, take a moment and think about that, because the rest of the world has to worry about ticket sales, and I didn't. We sold out. I could then focus on, oh, what else could we do? We had done tour, we had three touring companies that toured across the country doing best of second city shows. But then the idea was sort of like, well, what else could we do? You know, and what if we did, what if we played regional theaters and did residencies? So one of the ideas was, can we localize the work? And, and as I started to grow in my position, I recognized that a bunch of the people who were running the regional theaters were all people I grew up with in Chicago because they went to Northwestern or DePaul or whatever. So I call Susan Booth at the Alliance and be like, what about Second City Does Atlanta? And we did that like four years. And we did that at a number of other regional theaters and at uh, Center Theater in Baltimore and, you know, all, all over the country. Louisville, Actors Theater. And then we started being like, well, what if Second City took on classics and other things like that? So we created, you know, the Second City's Christmas Carol with Center Theater Group. And then it's about, uh, then it's a matter of being opportunistic, right? So my favorite story about that was we, during the economic crisis was the same time that, sec- that Chicago was going through a particular problem with its governor, Rob Blagojevich. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yes. Okay. So I have a unique situation there, which is I lived two blocks from Rob. So I would see him every day jogging because he jogged down the middle of the street. Didn't matter if it was snowy or not. I don't know if the, if the word narcissist means anything to you, but there was one before Trump 
And his name was Rod Blagojevich. That crisis is going on. And we're at the holiday party at Second City. And I'm, t- I'm talking to a couple of actors. And we're we're inebriated. And we came up with the idea of doing a rock opera around Rob Blagojevich called Rob Blagojevich Superstar. Like, it's basically Jesus Christ Superstar, but it's Rob Blagojevich. And I'd written this on, like, a napkin or whatever. And my boss had already said, like, Andrew had been like, no new ideas. No mo- We don't have any money. And so I go up and go, I got this idea that we came up with. And he's like, God damn it. He goes, if you can do this for, like, no money, you need to do it. This is where being a little bit dumb helps you. I don't know what I don't know. And I I'm, I didn't go to, like, a theater school. I didn't go to business school. But I'm good with people. I like people. I like talking to people. So I talked to my guys. I'm like, okay, I can't afford to pay you, like, a bunch. If I give you, like, a little bit of a down payment, but we split this. Like, 50-50 partners. Are you in? Yes, we're in. Okay. I call Actors Equity. I'm like, we got this idea. And they're like, what is it? And I tell them. They all start laughing. I'm like, all right. I have an in. And I go, would you make a deal where we do profit sharing? Are we doing that with the authors? And they're like, yeah, this is pretty great. And we get a bunch of people. We write this thing in like three weeks. So I show up to the theater. We're doing it on Tuesday nights in the Second City ETC, which is about a 180-seat theater. Uh, that we're, we're dark on Tuesday, so we could do it then. And we planned for six weeks. We sold out before we even opened. So the first preview, we were already sold out for the run. And Carol Marine, who's a local media figure, walks in, and she, and I've known her since I was a kid. And she's like, Kelly, do you know who that is? And she points to this row. And I go, no. And she goes, that's Rob Lugoyevich's entire staff, except for him. So we do the show, which is just, it's the best. I mean, it just takes... Patty Blagojevich's song, which was only swear words, was like a high moment in my theatrical career. And after the show, the Blagojevich staff goes, can we go backstage? And like, how did you know all this? Like, you nailed it. And we're like, we Wikipedia? We guessed? I mean, it seems pretty apparent. So that thing, we did it. And then I called Chris Henderson at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. I'm like, is anything in your upstairs theater, like for the summer? He's like, no. And I'm like, come to see the show. And then he's, he's like, we'll do it. And we did it over there. We got Blaga, we got Blagojevich to show up one night and actually make an appearance on the show. And he watched the whole show eviscerate him and then went up and played with the cast and was like, happy as a clam. So I think that there's this idea of being both opportunistic, but also, again, with context, with understanding like, oh, I, people are interested in this. This is a cartoon. We can out-cartoon the cartoon. Or where's a place that the Second City brand is an unlike we're great when we're sort of an unlikely pairing that's what i think we're we're best at so second city on a cruise ship like what how would that work well we're great because we're we're so local and we're the cruise ship is local to us we made fun of the fact that you'd hear these announcements constantly throughout the day or you'd flush the toilet and be scared that your soul would get sucked down it's so strong or the fight to get to the chocolate buffet i mean we we just throw that in the show this idea of sort of being local and playing for the audience you're in front of and knowing knowing how the brand works gives, I think for, for myself, it sort of gave me permission to kind of try anything. And like, and then it doesn't always work. Like, I didn't get in trouble because the dramatic improv show didn't work. And that goes to Andrew. I mean, Andrew Alexander, who's our owner and executive producer, was like, I'll just be mad at you if you don't try stuff. You're going to have failures. Do not get, and this is an improv thing. If you worry about the failures, you can't be a good improviser. They've literally done studies, neurological studies. Uh, There's a gentleman named Charles Lim when he was at Johns Hopkins of people improvising under an fMRI machine. And what they discovered is that when people are improvising, the part of their brain, the frontal lobe that self-censors, that has shame, goes down. It's not that like language goes up. It's that shame goes down. So if you are able to rid your shame, rid your fear, and we know this, like that's when you operate well. 
But so many of us are like in our fear bubbles, especially now when we're bombarded with bad news and we're bombarded with all the sort of digital messages and, you know, and other people's failures and money and home and family and all worried about that stuff. You have to find a way to block that out to create your art. Uh, and I think to create your business. I actually do. I don't think those are separate things. There was one little detail in there that I zeroed in on. You said, we came up with this great idea for this show and we sold out and we wrote it in three weeks. Yes, we did. And that's the amazing thing. When You know, it just dawned on me, of course, the big difference between a lot of comedy writers, improv writers, whatever it is. You guys are churning out material yeah. all the time. Abundant. Whereas musicals, plays, you hear, that ah, it took me 18 years to write this thing. Yeah. What is your biggest, like, action item tip that you can tell everyone that's a writer out there on how to write faster? Uh, write a lot. Like, like it's first thought, best thought. It, it is do the 25 jokes or 50 because one or two will be good and just start. And this is something you, as you say in your book, which is, oh, guess what? You have permission to start. So start. And everyone else is always waiting for someone else to give them permission. No, you got to just go crank it out. When, when Tina Fey was on the main stage at Second City, she was also doing playwriting classes at Chicago Dramatists. And she and I were taking a guitar class at the Old Town School of Folk Music where we learned Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom for guitar. By the way, it's mostly on piano. It's not on guitar. It's very hard on guitar. But she was insatiable in terms of her eating up what was around her. Adam McKay was the same way. Colbert was absolutely the same way. There was not a day where they didn't come in with a book that they'd been reading or, or an album they'd been listening to or a film that they saw or, you know. So they devoured information and art and then brought it into their world so do act is the first thing and then writing you have to write towards abundance and improvisation teaches you that because you're not afraid to throw out really really bad ideas we talked about how comedy has changed over the last 20 years or so where's it going Hmm. what do you think it's going to look like on broadway on television wherever will it be the same it's a little i gotta be honest especially when i stepped out of my hotel and i don't normally i'm staying up at 55th and i normally stay closer to Times square and i went out to go to the starbucks this morning and i saw colbert on marquee you know and stephen was my wife's roommate in college he was my first guest i'm like i took a picture and i posted it this is weird and knowing you know i'm working with seth and and all those folks and they second city people dominate the sort of comedy scene in, in a way that, you know, happens every 10 or 15 years, it seems. That's exciting, of course. I think that the art form of comedy is respected in a way that, that, that previous generations didn't necessarily, unless you were a geek for it. So my wife, Anne Libra, runs the major, a comedy major at Columbia College in writing and performance. And it's the only one in the country. I think um, Emerson started a BFA in it, but this is a, this is not that. Or MFA, yeah, I forget what it is. But, but she has 280 comedy majors. And the dads who all come up and talk to her are not like, what do you, you know, like, this is going to ruin my son. No, they want to talk about Richard Pryor. <laughs> they want to talk about Woody Allen albums. They want to talk about Lenny Bruce. And that's what she teaches them. I mean, I, I walked by class the other day, and they were listening to Bob Newhart records. And I literally stopped and was like, the education they're getting listening to the one-sided phone call, it, it, there's so much going on there in terms of art in terms of culture, in terms of craft. Oh, my God. And we just saw Shelley Berman, who was also someone who mastered that sort of phone call method. And these kids are soaking it up. And so they're coming out into the world with all this knowledge of Chaplin and Preston Sturgis and Marx Brothers and has them do vaudeville. They, they take a number out of a jar. They have to do that number, no matter what it is. 
she has kids who who uh, they had to do a trick. She has one kid who he leapt over twelve chairs from a standing position. It was just something that he learned at a point. And like, what? When was he going to use that? It's like, no, that's exactly what you do, right? Because you know, like, those are the things. It's like if you have a thing, find a way work your thing in. I mean, that that is real important. So I think that comedy is going to be taken more seriously. There's going to be more academic study because I'll tell you something about going to academia. The work that I'm doing now, they're very interested in improvisation. They are into studying it and researching it. Not so much comedy. That's not there yet. So, so we have some work to do for it to get sort of serious. I even talked to Peter McGraw on my podcast, who wrote a book about comedy, and he's a professor at Boulder, and he's basically like, I don't, I can't get the funding. People don't want to fund it. Whereas in improvisation, I think they see more of the direct connection to human behavior. But I, I, to me, the, the two go so hand in hand. I, I don't, I, I get how just sort of improvising in the world is 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 important, but I, I think the joy of it comes from those sort of you know moments of laughter. Someone I forget who said it, which is the shortest distance between two people is a laugh, and I love that because it it's it is that level of sort of and and you know you've seen those studies where people are like what's more what's more important you know sense of humor or sex or whatever and like sense of humor <laughs> you know that's for a lot of people having that ability to sort of laugh with your partner is like the greatest thing. It keeps me young. I know that. All right, my last question. What is the one thing, when you think about Broadway or the theater or even your theater and what you do, you know, you have to, you're responsible for making people laugh a lot, mm-hmm. entertaining them. What drives you crazy about how we're doing it today? Like, what uh-huh. really frustrates you? What makes you so angry? What pisses you off? We'll get that explicit rating again. That you would ask the genie from Aladdin yes. to wish away. In an instant, if that genie were here right now granting you one wish, you only had one. Oh, it can't be a list of things? Can't be a list. Thing that frustrates you the most that you'd ask the genie to wish away. Start on time. I hate going up late. It is disrespectful. We Like, you can't show up late to rehearsal. You show up late to rehearsal like more than once, you're fired. I don't know if that's the case in Broadway. It's the case, I mean... It should be. It's actually... I was looking at a stage manager report just the other day, and I was like, why are people late all the no. time? We couldn't be late no. 20 years ago. You can't be late. The, the theater I... And look, I'm saying, again, like, I haven't produced in a couple of years, and, and even in later in my career, other people were dealing with those reports. But in my world, you do not show up late. It is disrespectful. It wastes people's time. That's my time. I'm paying you for it. And and also with with the audience, like they're there and they want to see the show. The show's supposed to start at eight. Get it? it starts at eight. I hate. And I get shit happens, right? You know, we just did this benefit for George Went. It was a roast. It was for our alumni fund and for Gilda's Club. And we did it in the early slot on Saturday. But we had planned to do our eleven o'clock show. Well, the ro- it, people were drunk. The roast went long, <laughs> so we did start at midnight. But when you're an hour late, you you do stuff. And our stuff was like, we're going to feed and give alcohol to these people. And literally, like, people from alumni, Dave Keckner, other people are glad-handing people in the audience. Sorry we're late. It's our fault. And, and they, people are fine. The, the add to that, and maybe this is the better answer, is take care of your audience. You know, we, we know that we need to take care of our actors and our, ourselves. and we, every, Everyone's got to be taken care of. But take care of your audience. Like, what, 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 what you know, can, can they get to the bathroom? Do they know how to dress? Do they feel intimidated when they come in? Do it make them feel less intimidated? Like, why would you want that? You want them sitting in that seat ready to love you, which means you got to kind of like set them up for that. And so often in, in theater in particular, and I'm talking regional, but I'm talking Broadway experience as well, you're made to feel 
Mm, like one of the groundlings. You were made to feel that you should bow a bit, and you're lucky to be here. And you are lucky to be there. But they're more lucky to have you there. That's a great answer. Thank you so much for being here. Everyone out there, go get Kelly's book, Yes And. Listen to the podcast, Getting to Yes And. And we will see you all next week. Thanks so much, guys. Have you signed up for that conference yet? Go to theproducersperspective.com backslash conference. Sign up today. Prices are going up soon. See you there. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.